Our text for the message at this time is found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 45 and verse 6. Our subject for consideration is the throne of God. Let us read our text, Psalms 45, verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. This text, as you note, is taken from one of the Psalms of David and was written a thousand years before the incarnation of Christ, that is, before the manifestation of God in the flesh, to point up the fact that our text is a reference to Christ and to highlight the perfect harmony and symmetry of the Scriptures, I call your attention to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. Thus we read, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. A brief consideration of both verses of Scripture, Psalm 45, 6 and Hebrews 1, 8, reveals at least three profound and pertinent truths. Let us know. First, God's throne is eternal. Psalm 93, verse 2. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. Secondly, God's scepter authority or government is administered righteously. Psalm 9 verse 4. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou settest in the throne judging right. And then thirdly, the deity of Christ is irrevocably set forth in the text. Hebrews 1 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Let us read again from Psalm, Psalm 29, verses 3 and 10. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. This truth was graphically demonstrated by Christ in his subduing of the raging tempest. We read from the word, And he arose, and rebuked the sea, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Mark 4 and verse 39. There was a great calm, instant tranquility, placid, still, and peaceful. Mr. Cowper says in a poem, God works in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the deep and rides upon the storm. And again in another place, we read in Matthew 8:27, even the winds and the sea obey him. In studying our subject, the throne of God, I pray the Holy Spirit to give us at least a morsel of what Isaiah experienced in Israel's temple when he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In his vision, Isaiah was awed beyond measure and caused to see his own inherent and overt sinfulness. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. May we like Isaiah, see our awful corruption, confess it, 
and forsake it. One of the reasons Baptists preach the greatness of God and His throne is they know man by nature is altogether vanity and that there is no power outside of God that can save so mighty a sinner. A preacher friend of mine of many years' acquaintance had a standard greeting for his Christian friend, and I do not remember once when I was greeted by him that he deviated from his customary greeting. The greeting consisted of few but powerful words. He would invariably raise his hand in welcome, a gesture, and say, God is still on his throne. Perhaps the thought has been on some minds, knowing God is spirit. What could the throne of God in Scripture signify? We trust by divine enablement to answer this question in part in our present discourse. John 4, verse 24, we read, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must, must worship him in spirit and truth. The indefinite article A as used in this text, was not in the original manuscript. It was added by the translators and tends to impede understanding rather than enhancing it. God is the omnipotent spirit, the omniscient spirit, and the omnipresent spirit, not merely a spirit in these categories, but the spirit. In view of the fact God is spirit, what then does the throne of God signify in Scripture? This is a proper question and can be answered only from the Word of God. However, be it understood, we could never in a million plus years relate to you all that God's throne signifies. But it is my sincere hope and fervent prayer to at least satisfy a measure of your curiosity in regard to this question. In Revelation 19 and verse 6, we read, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. First then, we see that God's throne signifies absolute sovereignty, unlimited power, authority, and as I said, sovereignty. And then again in Isaiah 66 and verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. In this text, God says, Heaven is my throne. And he also adds, The earth is is my footstool. This scripture declares that the infinite or measureless heaven is the throne of God. And in this same scripture, we are apprised of the earth relationship to God's throne. It is merely his footstool. If you were invited into the throne room of an earthly monarch, your mind and vision would probably be captivated by the august splendor of the great throne while only giving a passing glance to the footstool. In this scripture, God is teaching by contrast the greatness and the vastness of His throne as compared with the impotence and smallness of earthly thrones and dominions. He is showing His people the utter insignificance of this tiny sphere we call earth as He views it from His all-encompassing throne. He says, Heaven is my throne. A throne of such dimensions would impress the most pronounced introvert. I think we everyone have pretty much the same idea or conception of earthly throne. A high-backed chair, seat covered with expensive velvet, 
and large armrest. But there is more to a throne than that which first meets the eye. Earthly thrones are not designed primarily with the thought of supporting the physical weight of the monarch, but how best to show his power, his authority, and glory. The throne must be impressive so as not to betray power poverty in the kingdom. The throne must be awe-inspiring and impressive. God says concerning his throne, Heaven is my throne. And so we read in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Heaven is God's throne. The firmament with its sun, its moon, and multiplied billions of stars are but the jewels with which God has embellished his throne. Surely, God, the God-fearing saint, is impressed with the throne of his sovereign and heavenly majesty. We think of the earth with its great oceans and continents as being very, very large. Yet, if, if the sun was cut into a million equal parts, each single part would be larger than the earth. And yet the sun is but one, but one of the millions of lights with which God has decorated and illuminated His sovereign throne. To get some idea of the immensity of God's throne, that is, the universe, let us consider the star known as Alpha Hercules. This particular star is more than 2,400,000,000 miles across. It is so huge that our own sun, together with the earth, as they are now positioned, and let us remember the distance between the earth and the sun is 93,000,000 miles, yet the sun and the earth, with the distance between them, could be placed 25 times in a row across the middle of this great, great star. To fly across Alpha Hercules from one end to the other, that is, if it were possible for man to do so, would take a space rocket flying at 25,000 miles per hour 11 years to get across it. David knew what he was talking about when he said, The heavens declare the glory of God. When Neil Armstrong set his foot down on the moon, July 20, 1969, and said, we have made a giant step for mankind. No one will deny it was truly a great feat for man. But considering the universe and its awesome expanse beyond the moon, man's going to the moon was like a baby taking its first step as compared with winning the Boston Marathon. And this is a very poor, poor comparison, as there is nothing known to man that can compare with any of the works of our great God. When man says we are going to conquer space, he does not realize what he is saying. He is unconsciously saying we are going to conquer God. For space is God's throne. To say we shall conquer space is equal to saying we shall travel to the end of up or we shall reach the bounds of infinity. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, the scripture tells us that God is the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. That is to say, God is eternal and omnipresent. Simply, God is always and always everywhere. David said, speaking of God, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? 
or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. A man can shut his eyes and blank out rivers, mountains, and ocean, but he cannot blank out God, nor can he blank out space. For to do so would be for him to blank out himself, and he can neither do that, nor does he even desire to do so. Man is an eternal being. The annihilationist theory may comfort him here, but it will eternally torment the God-denier in the hereafter. When you look up and see the sun, you are observing an object 93 million miles distance from you. It would take a train traveling at, fit, at 30 miles per hour, 350 years, to reach the sun. If a small child could suddenly reach up and touch the sun before the pain could travel the nerve system of his arm to his brain, he would be dead from old age. Yet all the space between the earth and the sun is but a small part of God's mighty throne. It would take an airplane traveling 200 miles per hour, 53 years to reach the sun. And again, yet all of this distance from the earth to the sun is but a small part of the sovereign throne of the eternal God. Infinity, as we consider it with our feeble and finite mind, cannot but be and remain a vague abstraction to us. But he that made the universe is infinitely bigger than his creation. God is infinite in all of his characteristics or attributes, but he has condescended to manifest himself to his people in his Son, Jesus Christ. To it, Paul says, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 19. That is, he is recon has reconciled the world of his elect unto himself. In Isaiah 40 and verse 22, we read, It is he, that is God, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heaven as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Once in a sermon, many years ago, I referred to myself as a mere human grasshopper. One dear church member said, Pastor, you lower your dignity by calling yourself a grasshopper. To which I replied, Really, brother, I was paying myself a compliment and giving myself a promotion, for God called me a worm. He spake unto his very beloved Jacob and said, Jacob, thou worm. Job said he was the son of a worm. And David said, But I am a worm and no man. And when I referred to myself as a human grasshopper, I really did lift myself up. For I got up off of the ground, uh, somewhat at least upon a branch. He said, Upon the circle, he sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and could, if he was pleased, reach down and scoop up all the oceans, the seas, the lakes, the rivers, and streams with his mighty hand. Yet all of this water would not even dampen the hollow of his hand. He could with one breath blow all the human grasshoppers off of his footstool, consigning them to the everlasting burning, and none could stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? 
Satan tried to usurp the authority of God and thereby overthrow God and steal his throne. Satan said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. In trying to wrest the throne from God, Satan used the term, I will, five times. And his people are still hung up on that self-condemning term. After Satan said, I will, God said, Thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Isaiah 14:12 and 14. The I will God of Arminianism is far too small for the sovereign throne of Almighty God. Free willism pays a lot of lip service to God, but it all stops short of allowing Him to be the eternal and sovereign throne setter. When in preachments God is declared to be the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, and that He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, they gnash their teeth. However, poor, puny, pathetic man needs to remember that God remembers that He is dust. Psalm 103, verse 14. And let us look at Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, When I consider thy heaven, that is God's throne, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? These are the words of David, one of the mightiest monarchs at the time. But he acknowledged his kingship was delegated to him by Almighty God. David said, But God is the judge. He putteth down one, and setteth up another. Psalm 75, verse 7. Let us consider another of the world's mightiest king that, that has ever lived. And let us note the contrast between him and David. That is between the natural mind and the spiritual mind. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? The Babylonian empire was the greatest empire in the world at the time. And the city of Babylon was the greatest in the earth at the time. The walls around the city would at the top accommodate seven chariots abreast. And the hanging gardens of Babylon was at one time considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, let us hear what God says to the proud, haughty, and high-minded king of Babylon. We read, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, that is, from God's throne, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as the oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Daniel chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. Nebuchadnezzar should have taken a lesson from Solomon, the wisest king ever to reign on this sin-cursed old earth. He said, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of waters. He turneth it whithersoever he will. God sent Nebuchadnezzar to the field of grass seminary for seven long years. His major was in humility, and his minor was in theology. After spending seven years in God's great school of sovereign grace, 
comes graduation day. We see Nebuchadnezzar standing with his cap and gown, holding his LLD in his hand. That is, his degree. The LL in his degree stands for learned and little, and the D stands for depravity. Any man schooled by God will learn that he is little and utterly depraved. God took Paul into the Arabian desert for three years, and Paul came out saying, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. O wretched man that I am, he says, I be nothing. I am less than the least of all saints. You rob a preacher of his humility, and you rob him of his power. God took all the muscle out of Nebuchadnezzar's ego, and I want to read to you his graduation speech. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, that is, up to God's sovereign throne. He got his eyes off of his own throne. And he said, I lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all of the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4, verse 35. Nita, Nikita Khrushchev, the once premier of Russia, with a smirk on his face and a belligerent fist raised towards heaven, said, If there be a god in the skies, our Sputniks and Mukniks will knock him out. Well, God is still on his throne, and that communist grasshopper is still roasting in hell. The Bible says, Be ye therefore as wise as serpents, and as harmless as doves. Did we not say God's throne signifies absolute sovereignty? Did not God say in Isaiah 66, 1, Heaven is my throne? Affirmed. Now turn with me to Psalm 115 and verse 3. We read, But our God is in the heavens, that is, on his throne. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Beloved, God is still on his throne, on his throne of sovereignty. He still does as he pleases. In the book of Job, we read, God seeth under the whole heaven. He is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. So it is. God's throne is the throne of absolute sovereignty. Now let us note also, God's throne signifies judgment. In Job 20 and verse 27, the heaven, God's throne, shall reveal his, the lost person's, iniquity, and the earth shall rise up against him. Beloved, the earth is not an ally with man in his sin against God. The people that stand before this throne of judgment will have arrived at the place of no further secret. Every evil deed will be made manifest, yea, every sinful thought and word revealed, and every wrong traced to its rightful source. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You may deceive your wife, your husband, your children, 
even the CIA, or the FBI. But know this, it is the epitome of ignorance and folly to entertain for a brief moment the thought that you can deceive God. Omniscience cannot be deceived. And, and, and to endeavor to do so is the ultimate in foolishness. The Bible tells us, For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If he soweth unto the flesh, he shall of the flesh reap corruption. But if he soweth unto the Spirit, he shall leap, reap life everlasting. That verse of Scripture in Galatians 7 is prefixed with this word, Be ye not deceived, for God is not mocked. Galatians 6, verse 6. In John three eighteen and 19, He that believeth on him is not condemned. Now, note that is not condemned, present tense, because he hath not, because, but he that believeth not is condemned, even now, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Then note with me, please, this verse, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, we hear them praying, saying, Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? In that eventful hour, in that hour of judgment, they who have denied Christ and stood against his word will run to the rocks, they will run to the mountains, and say, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. That's the last prayer meeting mentioned in the Bible. And it is from carnal hearts, out of fear, but to no avail. The heart is deceitful, the Bible tells us, and desperately wicked above all things, who can know it. Then, too, we want to note that the throne of God signifies holiness. We read in Psalm 47a, God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. God's holiness is of such radiance that supernatural creatures cover their eyes when in God's holiness is manifest. The seraphims covered their faces, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It is this burning radiance produced by God's effulgent holiness that Paul has in mind when he says, For our God is a consuming fire. I would to God that we have been caused by the blessed Holy Spirit to acknowledge our finite self and being and have been caused to see the greatness, the awesome throne of God and have prostrated ourselves at His nail-scarred feet and said from our heart, God, be merciful to us, sinners. May the Lord bless you. Amen.